Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Grits, cornbread, beans, and barbecue. They're the very definition of Southern cooking. They're the food stewed in centuries of African-American culture, drawing from a wide range of influences. One of those is Native American ingredients and methods whose roots can still be traced to the Southern cuisine we see today. Coming up this hour, we'll explore those roots and the modern efforts to document the Native contributions to Southern food. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Federally recognized tribes have reached a major opioid settlement. The Associated Press reports the agreement between tribes, the drug company Johnson & Johnson, and three distributors totals $590 million. Federally recognized tribes can participate in the settlement, which is to be used to address the opioid epidemic. Johnson & Johnson and its U.S.-based Janssen companies will pay $150 million. Tuesday, the company said the settlement is not admission of liability or wrongdoing. The rest of the settlement money will be contributed by the companies Amerisource Bergen, McKesson, and Cardinal. Chairman of the Spirit Lake Nation, Douglas Yankton, told the AP the settlement will help fund crucial, culturally appropriate services on the reservation. As the Washington football team unveils its new name, Native groups and advocates say it's time for no more Native mascots in all professional sports. The Native-led nonprofit, Illuminative, is among groups leading change-the-name efforts across the country, saying Native mascots, team names, and imagery perpetuate racism and stereotypes harmful to Native people. The group Not In Our Honor, made up of college students, Native American leaders, and American Indian organizations in the Kansas City metropolitan area, is hopeful the Kansas City football team is next. Rhonda Lavaldo, native journalist and tribal college educator in Lawrence, says it's more than just about sports. A lot of people always say, well, just don't, just don't go to the game or just don't watch it on TV. Well, that's not that easy because it's everywhere. It's on billboards. It's on um, the sides of buildings. It's, you know, the commercials. It's on the radio, the chop. The, um, they do it during concerts. And so it's not just the game. It's not just turning, turning the channel. You know, it's affecting our little kids um, that go to kindergarten all the way through 12th grade and then all those that are in, uh, going to school at Haskell. It's just so nuts at how crazy this uh, culture is with this uh, Kansas City native imagery. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We're, that's why we want to do this because I would like at, for at one point that a child, a Native American child, does not have to deal with this anymore. Advocates are seeking change from not only the Kansas City team, but other professional sports teams. On Wednesday, the Washington football team unveiled its new name as the Commanders in a nearly two-minute video posted on the team's website. The Senate Committee on Indian Affairs is holding a hearing Wednesday on the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, known as NAGPRA. Senators are expected to hear about impacts of the 30-year-old law and needs for the future. The law has provided for the repatriation of human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. Witnesses include federal officials and tribal NAGPRA practitioners from Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington, D.C. The hearing is being streamed online at indian.senate.gov. 
The National Caucus of Native American State Legislators wrote a letter to President Biden this week asking for the release of Leonard Peltier from prison. The letter expresses concern for the 77-year-old who recently tested positive for COVID-19 and his poor health related to diabetes. His attorney and former federal judge, Kevin Sharp, talked about Peltier's health Monday on Democracy Now! It's difficult to get information out of the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons. He tested positive on Friday, and so there were people there that I was able to talk to. He's doing okay um, and has not uh, had to been moved yet. The AIM activist has been imprisoned for decades after being convicted for involvement in the killing of federal agents on the Pine Ridge Reservation in the 1970s. The letter from Native state lawmakers requests Peltier be released and allowed to go home to the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa in North Dakota. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous population. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The historical intersections of African-American and Native American food had a major influence on what we consider Southern cuisine. Reflecting on that influence now is expanding the palate for contemporary Native methods and ingredients and growing cultural understanding for a number of tribes. Coming up, we'll hear about how African slaves and their descendants incorporated Native ideas and developed what we know as Southern cooking. We'll take a focused look at barbecue, and its evolution over time. And you can join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. How does African-American food and flavor influence your palate? We're at 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us today from Williamsburg, Virginia is Harold Caldwell. He's an apprentice carpenter and lead interpreter of African foodways at Colonial Williamsburg, a living and immersive museum. Harold, is Muskogee Creek, and adopted into the Stiff Farm family of the White Clay people. Welcome to NAC, Harold. How are you? Thank you for having me. Joining us also from Charleston, South Carolina, is Amethyst Ganaway. She's a chef and food writer, and she is African-American. Welcome to NAC as well, Amethyst. Hi, thank you for having me. And rounding out our group today from Denver, Colorado, we have Adrian Miller. He's a James Beard award-winning food writer and author of Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. Adrian, welcome to NAC. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. 
Folks, we've got a great conversation planned today. I can't wait to talk food, culture, history, and specifically as they pertain to both African American and Native people. Harold, let's start with you to provide some context. There was a diaspora from Africa of both people and food. Tell us about that. Yeah, so basically, um, it starts with the transatlantic slave trade and also with the Spanish and the Portuguese, um, their um, colonization of Africa, um, bringing over uh, African crops over on the ships to feed Africans on the ships because what they were feeding what they were feeding them wasn't um, appropriate. It was pretty much a combination of um, palm oil and pepper and um, and flour. They call it slabber sauce. Uh, so Africans on the ship were not eating the food, so they had to figure out different ways to feed uh, people that they were carrying on the ships. So what they began to do was bring over some of those familiar crops that Africans would be familiar with. So you're talking about um, beans, um, you're looking at um, okra sometimes. Um, <clears throat> those different kinds of crops that would be coming over um, would come over on the ships and, and make its way here to the New World. Um, and also you have the Spanish and the Portuguese who are taking these African crops and bringing these African crops to the New World. So we're talking about uh, African crops like watermelon, um, uh, rice, um, sorghum, millet, sesame seeds, uh, Oprah as well. Um, you also have um, slaveholders like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington who are experimenting with um, new ways to, to form new money-making schemes. So they were always looking for new crops to grow to make more money. So you would find that um, in the Jeff writings of Jefferson and Washington that they were always inquiring about different kinds of crops when people were traveling to bring them over so they can put the seeds to the ground and see if it was a viable crop to make money from. So when you're talking about in, in terms of Africa to here, there is a number of different ways that these African crops were um, coming over to the New World or to the Americas. And um, and uh, so you're talking about um, uh, uh, the particularly the English and the Europeans were very familiar with African crops. And so we know that Thomas Jefferson was trying to get uh, Madagascar um, variety of rice over here to Virginia so he can grow it. So he can try to, you know, figure out if that would be a viable money-making scheme as well. So a number of different ways, if you're talking about Africa from here, and then, of course, from the Americas to Africa, you have the Spanish and the Portuguese who are, of course, colonizing, colonizing uh, Central and South America, taking these, um, these crops from the Americas, like tomatoes and potatoes, um, cocoa, uh, the cocoa bean, cassava, corn, I mean, squash, Beans. So you talk about the when they call they have a, a classification they call it a French bean, which is actually a native bean, uh, where we know of as a kidney bean. So again, a whole I mean just a whole spectrum of items that are going back and forth across the water, um, and so that cross pollination of cultures uh, coming together, and in part because of colonization and, and the slave trade. Well, it, it sounds like so many of these foods that have just withstood the test of time and are so popular, these crops and various staples that we think of as being European or, or, or being from 
in another country, they, they have their roots in both African and indigenous peoples, which is really fascinating. And I want to talk a little bit more about that intersection between the African slaves and indigenous people. What, what were those early interactions in, in terms of how they influenced the way slaves cooked? Wow. Um, well, when you look at the first Africans that are coming here to the New World in terms of the slave trade would have been brought by the, by the Spanish, they were looking at America, the North American continent. Um, so they're bringing over Africans or Moors um, enslaved here to, uh, to Florida, um, to places like Arizona. And so, of course, um, with those Africans or those Moors are going to come, of course, that culture and that food as well. Um, now, when the British get involved with, their, um, with the slave trade and the colonization of uh, North America, their interactions with Native people— Will be sometimes when they're, um, you know, forming treaties that they would give gifts of enslaved Africans to Native people as gifts as part of these um, uh, treaty deals. So you find, and in particular for the, uh, some of the southeastern natives like uh, Muscogee and Hisalagi um, and um, the Seminole, um, they will also have Africans as enslaved people as well. Um, so. When you find those interactions early on, as early as the 16th century, you're going to find that, that the influence of Africa is going to have a huge impact on Native America because of the fact that they're intimately um, interacting with Africans, enslaved and free as well. So we're talking also free Africans or free African Floridians or free African Virginians, or whatever the case may be, um, interacting with these Native groups through trade, going through markets, going to markets in the city whether you're talking about trading foodstuffs or pottery or whatever have, whatever have you. So that interaction was, was very important to the, uh, the dissemination of these different crops when we're talking about the Americas and Africa. Okay, and for our listeners, we've done other shows on the history of, of slavery, and um, it's common knowledge that, that many tribal groups held slaves, were slave owners, uh, after the arrival of Europeans and after the slave trading uh, industry began. And Harold, you mentioned uh, Salaji, uh, for many of us better known as the Cherokee and some other tribes that that had a really strong African-American influence. And specifically with regard to cuisine, in what other Native communities specifically do we see these strong African-American influences with regards to the food? I would say you would, well, you would pretty much see that up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, you know, so for the most part, when you're looking at um, Native nations interaction, interacting with Africans, of course, they're going to also have that, um, that connection to the food. And it's going to evolve over time, particularly if you're looking at Native people in, in the South. It's going to also, their food ways is also going to be Southern food ways as well. So if you look at, for instance, um, my people in Muscogee, <clears throat> they were very familiar with black eyed peas. They're very familiar with uh, sorghum. They're very familiar with rice. It's a part of the traditional diet now. And we know that um, pretty much the rice that was grown in North America is the African variety of rice. So you're looking at these interactions. Um, and, 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 and let me just say also, in Africa, even today, you find these native crops that are still being used today when you're looking at tomatoes, if you're looking at potatoes, if you're looking at sweet potatoes, 
Um, if you're thinking about corn, most certainly corn, um, uh, uh, what else? Uh, cassava, all of these are staple crops in Africa to this day. So that interaction between the two continents is, is huge. It's huge. Sure. Well, you mentioned black-eyed peas and, and southern cooking, and I have to tell you, I consider myself an adopted son of the South. I'm from New Mexico, of course, but my spouse, she's Eastern Cherokee, so I'm, I'm very familiar with, with North Carolina, South Carolina, that whole part of the country. And I'm curious because in our home, black-eyed peas, those are a staple on New Year's Day. What is the history there about people eating black-eyed peas and some of these other southern foods on New Year's Day? Well, in Africa today, um, in particular uh, in particular West Africa, black-eyed peas, eating them uh, for New Year's was a sign of good luck to bring in a good year, good luck for the New Year. So you would eat black-eyed peas to bring in a good New Year, and it's still done today, still done today. Okay. So those traditions still continue. Got it, got it, okay. And I know she, uh, my wife always whips up a big, big, pan of collard greens too and she says those represent dollar bills so i always ask for well give me extra greens i want as many greens as you can fit on my plate says i want to make sure i have a good profitable new year well folks we're learning more about native and african-american heritage and specifically with regard to food and how these vibrant cultures interacted back in the early days hundreds of years ago and if you want to talk if you've got a comment or a question or any insights to add please give us a call you know the number 1-800-996-2848 i'm going to tell you just in case you forgot 1-800-99-NATIVE you're listening to native america calling this is sean spruce we're going to be back right after a short break The United Nations just kicked off the Decade of Indigenous Languages. It's a global effort to recognize and strengthen languages, many of which are in danger of being lost. We'll learn about the effort and touch in with tribal efforts to keep language revitalization thriving. That's on the next Native America Calling. the centers for medicare and medicaid services you're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking about the historical interactions of indigenous and African-American food. If you have a question or comment about how each culture influenced the other, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Before we went to break, we were learning about African influences in Native American foods. And I'd like to bring another perspective into our conversation now. We have Amethyst Gunaway a chef and food writer. Amethyst, can you provide a little bit more background on specifically how does indigenous food influence Southern food? Where do we see that show up in the historical timeline? I think we see it um, very, very early on, as Harold was saying. I mean, almost immediately 
when Africans were brought to this country um, or to the new world, you, you know, for me, the biggest one is always is using corn. Um, and of course, like Carol said, too, that that kind of cross cultural, um, you know, pollinization of using in certain ingredients in particular. Um, but I also see it a lot in, in the use of using all of an ingredient, so whether that be um, hunting, using all of the animal, um, and, and really making use of the land around you and also being really respectful of that. Um, but we do definitely see it very, very early on. Um, type of people had to get used to the new world and where they were and, and had to figure out ways to eat. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned, you know, corn and the way ingredients were secured. And I'm curious, what about just cooking methods, like with regard to how meats were roasted or, or broiled or boiled? Were there indigenous influences in that as well? I would definitely uh, say I would definitely say so. Um, and, you know, Adrian probably can definitely get back to, to barbecuing, particularly as one that. Um, has that, that, again, that cross-cultural connection there, as well as, you know, the use of braising, um, which, you know, cooking low and slow for a, for a long time, um, definitely another technique that was that was used. I would also say frying, in a sense. Um, I don't think that was a, a very large uh, European technique that was being used at the time. Um, and you see a lot of dishes like, like the hoe cake or the Johnny cake, um, you know, things being cooked over fire or over coals. So definitely see those mm -hmm. there as well. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Johnny cakes and some of these other foods. So what are some other dishes, common dishes that I think we're all familiar with that have indigenous influences in Southern cuisine? My, again, my biggest one is probably cornbread, right? Um, a lot, so many people think that of cornbread as such an iconic Southern dish. And even for me growing up here in South Carolina, I always just thought that was, you know, that's a regular a regular meal, and I never knew the indigenous influence, um, you know, or not even influence, that that is an indigenous dish that over time um, became known as something Southern or even, you know, connected with soul food, which is a particularly African-American, I guess, form of cooking, right? Um, cornmeal dumplings, mush is another, is another one for sure um, that I think you see definitely eaten across both um, cultures. Um, wild game, using using wild game, using a lot of uh, like foraging techniques, I guess, and, and ingredients you could forage and gather, um, you know, right at your own back step. I think it's really fascinating how some of these really delicious foods like cornbread, I, I feel like so many cultures and regions, they kind of try and claim those really good foods as their own, you know, because I think in the Southwest where I'm from, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that eat cornbread and, and do different types of recipes with corn. I think a lot of them kind of like to, to lay a, a stake in that or claim like the, the founders of it or the originators of it. And I probably not maybe necessarily accurate historically, but definitely interesting. And so you mentioned soul food, Amethyst, and I know you've done a lot of writing about soul food. Can you talk more? What led up to the creation of soul food? Of course. So, you know, if we look at the term specifically soul food, that really came around the civil rights era, 60s, 70s. Um, it, it was been used before, but particularly it was, you know, a term coined out of African-Americans really reclaiming their culture, their African, you know, African culture and roots um, during a obviously very 
you know, challenging, changing time in the, in the, in the world. Um, so you see people, you see African-Americans particularly going back and eating things like greens and eating things like cornbread and these dishes that had kind of been, you know, t- kind of told that these were just things we got from making do or these were just the, the scraps that we had. So we had to kind of come up with these things or, you know, these dishes were unhealthy. And um, so, you know, our palates changed to kind of start looking a little bit more American, looking more European. Um, and people were really reclaiming that these dishes were good. These are dishes and, and ingredients that we've been eating, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, so there's always this kind of intersection, though, of Southern and soul food. Um, and I, I kind of put it in like where a, a square can be a or a rectangle could be a square, but a square can be a rectangle. Right. Like there's <laughs> definitely intersection um, in between the two. And I, and I do think that other cultures can have a form of soul food. But when you use that term specifically, you want to definitely um, think about it in the, in the, through the lens of, of African-Americans. Um, and, you know, you definitely have soul food that is Southern food, but I think you can have Southern food, like I said, that's not necessarily soul food. Because, um, you know, you could have somebody from, you know, West Virginia, you know, who has a great recipe passed down for whatever. And it, it's definitely Southern or maybe, maybe not, it's West, West Virginia, but, you know, um, it's still Southern <laughs> in its roots, but maybe, you know, but is that still considered sure. soul food? So, yeah. Sure. Well, I'm curious, you know, could you provide some examples for our listeners? Cause like, how would you define soul food versus Southern food? Like what are the key differences there? I mean, obviously there's similarities, but there are differences too. I, for, for me particularly, I would say soul food are, those dishes that are specifically rooted in African culture as well, right? So like dishes like hop and jam, or when you have that, those black eyed peas, um, cow peas, things like that, or, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, some would say macaroni pie, right? Cause you know, uh, an enslaved person, uh, James Hemings actually came up with that recipe, right? So it's like, it's technically Southern and it's technically soul food, but is it actually Rooted in African culture? I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see what else. So food, I would think, I mean, rice dishes, of course. So, yeah. Rice. Well, you mentioned um, Chef Hemmings, and I mean, he he was Thomas Jefferson's sh- chef, right? Yeah, Thomas Jefferson's uh, chef and also his uh, relative, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Interesting. And, and that he's attributed to basically inventing macaroni and cheese is that correct macaroni pie yes yeah. so kind of what we know now is as macaroni and cheese right baked baked southern style macaroni pie um which is another dish you actually see across the african diaspora and other cultures um but for so long thomas jefferson got the credit for making this dish when in, in reality thomas jefferson had sent james hemming to to actually become classically trained as a chef and James Hemming came back and created this, you know, American staple as a dish, but Thomas Jefferson was the one that got all the credit for it. Wow. So he actually sent Hemmings to school to become a master chef like that and like stole the credit basically for some yeah. of these dishes. Yeah. Which was, uh, you know, geez. what can, you know, for it to be a, a, a freed enslaved person, you know? Well, it makes me wonder, you know, Jefferson is credited with so many, of these like iconic 
innovations in society like the acreage system and all these like methodologies for government it makes me wonder like how many of those are really his ideas maybe he was right. stealing a lot of those ideas too and this what about um Gullah Geechee food can you talk about that yeah of course so Gullah Geechee um the Gullah Geechee are a community of people that are the direct descendants of enslaved West Africans that were brought um, particularly to the low country, so parts of North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina, um, really along the kind of coastal regions where rice was grown. Um, so like Carol said, too, rice was a, I mean, was the cash crop for the South. And these enslaved West Africans were brought specifically from parts of West Africa that were known for growing this form of African rice um, that we now know as Carolina gold here um, that you know, and it, it's grown completely differently from from other um, kinds of rice. And, and these slaves were brought here particularly because of their knowledge for knowing how to grow this rice in low-lying, marshy areas. Um, and the food is, is heavily influenced and is by West African culture even now. So we have dishes like red rice and, again, Hop and John, where you see, uh, you know, one-pot dishes, purlus, things like that, that are really, again, rooted in... West African methods of cooking and, and, and using those ingredients. Um, and the culture really stuck with cooking and not just cooking, but culturally um, was able to maintain so many of those traditions because of actually um, being disconnected from the mainland a lot of times from, from the coast, from those states. Um, so again, a lot of that is retained definitely in the foodways. Okay. Well, going back to this conversation about chefs and African-American chefs in the early days, the early history of the United States, and Amethyst, why is it important that we understand the way Native or, or Black or Afro-Indigenous chefs put the spotlight on these foods and stories? Why, why do we need to understand that? Yeah, well, you know, on one, on one hand, I think it's because so much of it has been whitewashed. Um, so much of it has been erased. And, and, you know, you look at the earliest cookbooks and it's, I, I see nothing but indigenous and African influenced recipes in there. Then you got to think about, well, we weren't allowed to read or write. So you have, you know, these housewives that were writing these books and getting the credit for it, but with indigenous and African-American recipes. Um, so I think that's a big part of it is, is erasure and making sure that, you know, People understand that what you're eating has a story behind it, and it's a lot, you know, more meaningful and a lot more deep. And that, you know, we should be proud of our food ways. Um, when for so long we've been told that they they aren't good enough or they aren't good for us. Um, you know, I think both cultures can say that we we we've, we've always known that that's not true. But I think you know, as generations kind of come on, um, that can get lost. You know, can get lost throughout time and throughout translation. So I think it's really important that. We remember, you know, that we're more than, you know, I guess what we've been told. Absolutely. And I'd like to loop Harold back in because, Harold, I think you've got some some insights to offer as well with regard to African-American chefs not getting the credit they deserve. Harold, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's that's a problem. Um, now, of course, with other media, you know, resources, you know, um, people of color are now, you know, taking agency of, you know, reclaiming 
the influence of Africa and Native America in terms of not only Southern cuisine and American food, but also having a huge impact on diaspora. And people are now not no longer waiting for folks to recognize us. We're making a stand and saying, this is this is the reality. This is who we are. This is the food that you're eating. This is where we're this is uh, this is where it comes from. And we're more connected than not. And, you know, you you might not like us, but you don't have any compunction of eating a black IP. You don't have no problem eating corn. You don't have no problem eating okra. But you don't like me because for whatever reason. But we're more connected than not. So giving credit where credit is due, due is very important. And it's about time. It, it's it's 21st century. You know what I'm saying? So, so giving, giving, you know, shedding light on such an important history and our impact, Native and, and African, on the world and America needs to be known. It, it, enough of this sitting in the shadows and, 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 and not being recognized or waiting for others to recognize us. It's all about us now taking agency and taking it back and making a stand and putting ourselves out there and, and, and making no apologies of saying that this is our impact and, you, you know, you're going to recognize it because you eat the food, you recognize the culture, you share the culture. With us, we eat the same kind of food. So um, I, think it's, I think it's time. It's, it's time to, um, you know, change the narrative. Yeah, I think a lot of people agree with that for sure. And, you know, we eat so many of these same foods and really important to acknowledge where what the origins are there. Amethyst, talking about soul food again, what is the state of soul food today? I mean, are people cooking and eating it more? And, you know, some of these new restaurants that specialize in soul food, how's that whole industry moving along? Oh, man, it's a it's an ever-changing, beautiful thing to be witnessing right now, um, to be in the middle of, too. Um, soul food isn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 been, it's been here before it had that name, right? Um, but I definitely right now see a, see a, see a change where, like Harold's saying, we're, it's not that, I even, that we're necessarily like reclaiming it. We've always kind of claimed it, but we're definitely able now to tell it through our, our own, you know, our own voices um, and tell our own narratives about it. So, you know, I, I see a lot of new restaurants popping up and I see a lot of nice, great young chefs, man, coming through and really again, changing that perspective that, you know, people think they're going to go to a soul food restaurant and get a, a, a meet and three um, when they're getting in it. And then they show up and they're getting that something that's still obviously very rooted in soul food. Right. But it's completely changes what, what they have an idea of it as. So I'm interested in talk about soul food and it, it sounds like there's just a lot more to it than just the food. There's like a, a spirituality to it almost. There's an attitude to it. Could you explain to me a little bit just how it differentiates from just kind of mainstream American food with regard to the to the to the to the thought behind it, the attitude, the spirituality maybe? Absolutely. I, I tell people all the time that the best way I could describe soul food is the fact that I can stand next to my grandmother and have her walk through a recipe with me exactly, you know, and for some reason Mine still doesn't taste like hers, <laughs> and it's because a person puts a piece of themselves in whatever they make. Um, I'm a I'm a firm believer in that. But then, too, you know, kind of on a more spiritual side, is a, a lot of cooking is rooted around 
tradition and rooted around um the word I'm looking for a uh, uh, habit almost right like ritual like ritual so like for me washing rice is something that's habitual for me I've, I've done it my entire life rice is one of the first things I learned how to cook but I find a certain sort of solace in knowing that like the way that I have to rush wa- wash and prepare this rice is the same way that someone in West Africa right now is washing rice or somewhere else in this world, someone else is washing rice exactly like this, and it's, you know, been done and passed down for generations. Um, so I think that there's a, a way that soul food is able to connect you to the now, the people that are around you now, um, into your past as well. Connecting us now into the past. Really profound, Amethyst. Folks, I am learning so much about this whole topic indigenous foods, African-American foods, and I hope you are too. We'll have to take a short break, but we will be right back. You're listening to Native America Calling. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strongheart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strongheart's Native Helpline. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. It's Black History Month, and we're taking the hour to focus on how Native American and African American food influence each other. And there's still time to join the conversation. Maybe if you ask nicely, one of our chefs today will share a secret recipe. I don't know. I'm hopeful. The number to call, 1-800-996-2848. At this point, I'd like to bring our third guest into the conversation, Adrian Miller. He's an award-winning food writer and author of Black Smoke, African-Americans, and United States of Barbecue. Adrian, sorry you had to wait so long. You doing okay? (laughs) Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) All righty. Well, appreciate your patience. So I just love that title, Black Smoke, African-Americans, and the United States of Barbecue. I, I mean get me going on barbecue i just i absolutely love barbecue i my wife always left that's where we went on our very first date i took her to a barbecue place so but hey i'm talking to an expert here phyllis and what what is the origin of barbecue yeah so again good to be with you and so um i've argued that the origin is uh native american and you know some people don't agree with that but there's there's certain things we we know um and the tricky thing is a lot of this early history is undocumented so we're dealing with oral traditions and stuff. So it's kind of hard to find out what was happening, you know, 400, 400 years ago. Um, but we know that Columbus and his crew, when they arrive in the Caribbean, they see indigenous people cooking meat in a way that they really didn't recognize. And um, eventually the word barbecue comes from the indigenous word for the framework that the um, meat was on. It was like, a, a imagine a a platform of sticks um, with uh, meat on it like fish or small game, maybe even some vegetables cooked over a slow fire. So barbecue is really the word that is attached to that frame, that platform, 
and then eventually gets um, applied to the cooking process and the meat itself. And the one thing that didn't make sense to me is was the uh, the origin story for barbecue in the American South, because the story was okay. Well, white people saw what was happening in the Caribbean, and then they took it to the American South and added their European animals, you know, pigs, sheep, cows, and other things, and then we get Southern barbecue. But that seems to assume that indigenous people in North America and the American South were not what would later be called the American South, didn't have their own ways of cooking meat. So what I did is I I looked at early kind of travel diaries and accounts and observations of what indigenous people were doing, and uh, eventually what would be called barbecue uh, I argue comes from the shallow pit method that indigenous people were doing in the South, where you would uh, have a depression in the ground, and there would be hardwood burning coals, and then the meat could either be cooked right on top of that or some kind of lattice of sticks was laid over that depression and the meat was cooked on that. And that puts us on the road to Southern barbecue. So I say it's it's uh, Native American in origin and then later uh, colonizing Europeans and enslaved Africans um, start to add their own uh, – culinary traditions to this and it becomes something different okay so native american in origin but then of course many other cultures and peoples influenced it from that point on and and you mentioned barbecue and and it has this reputation of being from the south but you know I travel quite a bit and I've learned that like, if you want to get into like an, well, I shouldn't say argument. Let me just use the phrase passionate conversation. But if you want to get people going, you start talking about which part of the country you think has the best barbecue. Cause it seems like so many areas kind of lay claim to that title of, of world's best barbecue. But could you give us an overview of like what some of these regional differences in barbecue are like say with Midwestern barbecue, I know there's a lot of good barbecue in Oklahoma, um, North Carolina, of course. What are some of the key differences? Yeah, so I would say that the earliest barbecue was in Virginia, and then uh, the Carolinas, um, they kind of share a common tradition. So the idea was cooking whole animals over a pit dug in the ground filled with hardwood burning coals. And so usually in the earliest versions was um, pigs, but really sheep, cows, if they were cooked, cows were big, uh, usually they were quartered. But sheep, pigs, and cows, even goats could show up over that pit. And then um, usually that was seasoned with the vinegary sauce, um, spiked with red peppers. When you get to the western Carolinas, you have a little tomato added in there. But I I think about those Carolina traditions, um, mainly whole hog, a whole animal cooking. And then you get a deep south tradition, so Alabama, um, Mississippi, Georgia, where you have pork shoulder, spare ribs, uh, chicken, uh, in southern side dishes and desserts. Uh, then we move over to a place like Memphis, where it's known for spare ribs, either doused in uh, sauce or uh, with Greek seasonings, which is called the dry rub method, and a pork, pork shoulder sandwich with coleslaw. Uh, also, uh, some oddities, but also glorious, is barbecue spaghetti and barbecue bologna. Uh, and then a place <laughs> like Kentucky. Yeah, if you've never had that, man, that's good stuff. Um <laughs> And then in a place like Kentucky, they're known for lamb, even though they have you know pork and other things, but they're known for more lamb and mutton. Uh, then you've got Southside Chicago, which is known for kind of um, uh, rib tips, uh, chicken, and also hot link sausages. And then we come down to Missouri, like St. Louis and Kansas City, you've got a more eclectic mix of all kinds of meats. You've got brisket, you've got ribs, you've got chicken, you've got sausages, you've got mutton, all of that stuff shows up. 
Uh, and in St. Louis particularly, you've got something called turkey ribs, which is basically uh, butchering the shoulder blade of a turkey and, and making it look like a rib. And then we get to a place like Texas, where you have uh, East Texas, heavily influenced by enslaved African Americans, uh, pork, beef, chicken. It's got a Creole influence, so you've got something called boudin sausages. Uh, in the south of Texas, you've got more of a Latino indigenous um, influence, so things like cabeza, which is cow's head, or cabrito, goat. And then you've got central Texas barbecue, known for brisket and something called hot gut sausage. And I, I would say that that's now the most popular barbecue style out there because most new restaurants and most people are getting into barbecue uh, these days are emulating that style. And then the last one I will point out is in uh, California. Uh, you've got something called Santa Maria barbecue, which is a beef tri-tip cooked over red oak. So that's a quick overview. Um, and <laughs> in other parts of the country, really it's like riffing off some of these regional styles as people move to new places and and transplant, okay. transplant a barbecue style. Okay. Well, Adrian, you just like took us on this whirlwind tour of the U.S. and my, <laughs> my head is still reeling. But buddy, you got to go easy on me uh, this close to the lunch hour because I'm hearing about all these different barbecue styles. And, your, uh, yeah. <laughs> just trying to answer your question, brother. Go ahead. Yeah, you got Well, you answered it. That's for sure. So these regional differences, I mean, it, it has to do with the sauce, but also the types of meats that are being cooked, uh, as well as the actual cooking processes. So it's, it's really fascinating, like how deep it really goes in these differences. And, you know, another thing that I've learned about barbecue myself is that it can mean very different things to different people. And an example I'm going to give, like earlier, I mentioned that my wife is Eastern Cherokee from North Carolina. And a few years ago, she had this coworker there in Cherokee and he was, uh, he was from a Northern Plains tribe and he was getting ready to retire. And the office asked him what kind of food he wanted because they were going to throw him this retirement party. And he said, Oh, just, I want barbecue. I want barbecue. So a couple of days later, day of the party, he was really surprised, um, he was happy, but he was surprised when one of his coworkers rolls up and he's pulling this giant smoker on a flatbed trailer. And he's like, hey, you know where I come from? This is cool, but where I come from, a barbecue is burgers and hot dogs. So it's like a totally different perspective. But like, where, where do those things like that fit in with the whole barbecue culture, burgers and hot dogs and some of these bratwurst and things like that? Yeah, see, that's where I think the, the definition of barbecue gets sloppy because all of these other <laughs> ways of cooking meat have been put under the barbecue definitional umbrella. So to me, those are grilling, right? That's uh, that's specifically cooking directly over heat. Um, so that's, that's a different thing to me. Uh, to me, barbecue is uh, cooking for a longer period of time, and it could be indirect or direct cooking, but it's really usually larger cuts cooked over a longer period of time uh, just to make sure it's infused with smoke. But now, uh, you know, for a long time, people have added other things to the barbecue term. And so, yeah, but I think that's more like grilling, backyard cooking. Okay. So set the record straight. Thank you for that, because I think a lot of our, our, our listeners might be a little bit confused sometimes with regards to what really means barbecue or, or grilling and vice versa. So... Adrian, I mean, you've been doing this a long time, and how have you seen Southern food and barbecue evolve and just continue to influence American cuisine? Yeah, so um, the interesting thing is that Southern food is one of the strongest regional food identities we have in this country. 
I mean, there are certainly other regions in the country, but they don't just they don't get as much shine as southern food. Um, and I think that's one thing is I love southern food. I think it's delicious. Um, and there's been a lot of interesting uh, interest in regional cuisines really since the early 2000s. And uh, so southern food has been on a winning streak for a long time, and I think barbecue has been along for that ride. Uh, what's been interesting to me is to see southern food and barbecue show up in other parts of the country. I mean, even where I live in Denver, Colorado, we have a lot more barbecue joints and southern-inspired slash themed restaurants than we had, say, 20 years ago. Um, so one of the things then is as with the spread of this cuisine and its popularity is just making sure that indigenous and African influences are celebrated because unfortunately a lot of times when chefs, restaurateurs, and other people are featured with barbecue or southern food, it's usually white dudes. And uh, the cuisine has a much more complex culinary heritage, and um, a, a number of diverse cooks have been in the mix for centuries to make southern food and barbecue what it is today. Okay. Now, what about somebody listening on the show today, and, and maybe they've played around with the griddle a little bit, cooked a few things, but they're definitely not any kind of an expert or a pro. What's the best way to, for somebody to learn how to, to make really good barbecue at home? So here's the really good news. There are so many videos now on YouTube for barbecue. It's really easy. So as long as you have enough time and you're willing to invest in the equipment and everything you need uh, to, to barbecue, there's a lot of information out there. Um, you know, the, the key to good barbecue is fire management. So you have to understand how to work with fire. Um, and when you're cooking meat, you know, you don't want to be the, the kind of person who's opening up your grill or whatever frequently to look at it because you're going to lose a lot of heat. So um, it's really about fire management and also knowing how to season meat and just giving um, meat the time it needs to do what it does when it's cooked over heat. So there's uh, quite a few uh, good videos out there. I, I like um, stuff by uh, – there's a guy named Stephen Rachelin. Um, who's done a lot. Um, there's another website called AmazingRibs.com, which has a, a ton of information. And in terms of recent cookbooks, um, I'm a big fan of Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue. He's an African-American barbecue guy out of Charleston, South Carolina. He has a great cookbook. So those those are great places to start. Okay. Well, you heard it here, folks. Fire management, that's pretty much the key, according to a pro, Adrian Miller. And with this, I'd like to ask you as well, for our listeners interested in learning more about soul food, maybe wanting to try a few recipes out, what's your advice? Oh, man. Oh, uh, <laughs> get into it. I mean, um, there are so many resources out there to, to dive into. Um, I guess I would start with, you know, what's your favorite thing to eat? What do you want to learn? And then keep cooking and keep trying to get what you want. That's really what soul food is about. Don't think that you got to be precise and, you know, exact and like somebody on MasterChef or something like that. You know, it's about cooking with feeling um, and cooking what makes you feel good. Um, but if you are looking for, you know, specific resources, um, I mean, Adrian Miller, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> the guys, the guys on this, on this call right now, as well as, I mean, um, you know, you have Michael Twitty, you have Dr. Jessica Harris. Um, I could literally list uh, so many people. Um, but I think I think the, the biggest thing is, you know, if there's something that you like and you want to learn how to cook it, then, you know, just go out there and try and cook with feeling. Okay, cook with feeling. And Harold, how about for our listeners that are interested in learning more about some of this history and this 
intersection, if you will, between African-American foods and Native American foods? Where can we learn more about that? Well, um, like uh, you just mentioned, mentioned uh, Michael Tweedy. Um, he's a good resource. Um, for me, because of my job and what I do um, here at Colonial Williamsburg, for me, I go to the actual documents, the primary documents. There are a wealth of information, um, particularly if we're looking at um, Native foodstuffs and a lot of um, foodstuffs that might be missing from Native groups. I know the English wrote a bit about uh, describing a Native food and some of the um, – a little bit about actually write, writing down some of the recipes, the descriptions of the food, what they use. Those um, actual documents like um, – documents written by uh, William Byrd. He was a slaveholder, but he also wrote a book about Virginia, uh, the history of Virginia. Um, uh, people like that who have, um, or let's say um, even some earlier folks like um, John Smith writes about descriptions of uh, native food. The primary documents are very, really important to get uh, folks connected, particularly we're talking about native food um, and what some of those traditional foods were um, because they wrote them down as they were seeing them, as they were interacting with uh, Native people. Um, so for me, the primary documents are, are really, really important to give you some, to give you insight. Okay, so the historical record documents a lot of this stuff was was detailed way, way back in history. So really, really fascinating conversation. I want to thank our guests, Amethyst Ganaway, Adrian Miller and Harold Codwell for sharing their passion for food while guiding us through the confluence of African-American and Native American cuisines. Folks, join us again tomorrow for a discussion about the start of the United Nations International Decade of Indigenous Languages. We've got another live show planned for you. It's going to be a great one, so please tune in. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening.
Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a seven-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is February 21st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.